You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before I jump into this, I have to say, a couple years ago, Erica was asking me to move to Iowa, and uh, I was like, there's no chance we're moving to Iowa. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, God had a different plan because I found out later that Erica had been praying and praying and praying and God answered her prayer and here we are today in, in Iowa. Uh, yeah. So I will also say that not once have I ever thought I'd be up here giving a message. So when Sean asked me to uh, give this message, I was like, well, who am I to say no? Because, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. So... <laughs> in, in preparation for this uh, message, Sean, I'd have to say I have a developed a newfound respect uh, for you and other pastors like you who preach God's truth uh, and to make sure that it's uh, correct biblically in context. So I want to say thank you for doing that because you do that week after week. And uh, I, I have found out in preparation that this is no simple task. It is, it is something that uh, takes a lot of time, and I thank you. So before we uh, get in, let me uh, just open up in prayer. So Father, thank you for giving me this opportunity to read and share your word here today. I ask, Lord, that you would help me to speak your truth clearly and effectively, and that it would penetrate the hearts of those who are listening today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, uh, if you could open it up to the book of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 10 verses 17 through 31, and if you don't have your Bibles, I believe we're going to have it up on this, the screen behind me uh, when we read. So let's, let's begin. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus looking, looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, so this text uh, has a ton of information that we have to break down and digest. But before we dive into the details of this text, I want to kind of slightly broaden our view of what we just read, because this was just a small snapshot of uh, an interaction between Jesus and this man before Jesus started out on his journey. So a couple questions. Where was Jesus heading on his journey? And what did Jesus just finish doing before this man ran up to him? With a, with a look forward and, and a look back in Scripture will help answer those questions. So if we were to look forward in verses 32 through 34, you'd find that Jesus was on his journey to Jerusalem. And this is where his ultimate purpose on earth was to take place, his death, burial, and resurrection, to pay off our debts so that we can have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, if we back up to verses 13 through 16, we can read, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, "Let, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So now in reading verses 13 through 16, we see that Jesus was receiving and blessing children prior to going on his journey. And he also made a simple yet profound statement to his disciples, which applies directly with the upcoming interaction between Jesus and this man. And that statement was, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit more, if I can. Just taking the words, like a child. What does that mean? What was Jesus implying there? Speaking from experience, as I'm sure my wife and others of you who are parents would agree, children demand a lot of time and attention. But that's, I don't believe that's what Jesus was implying here. No, the characteristic I'm thinking of is in little children is that they're helpless. Or they're, they're dependent on others. They're little children that cannot sustain themselves because, let's face it, they're children. They rely on us parents to take care of them, to feed them, to clothe them, to protect them from danger, to shelter them from the elements, to teach them right from wrong, and the list goes on. But what else can we glean from like a child? Well, I must say that it's always a joy when I come home from work as soon as my girls see me walk through the door, their eyes light up, and they yell out, Daddy's home! And, and I kneel down with my arms open, and, I, you know, it's not just any normal hug. It, no, it's a running tackle-style hug to try and knock me over. And that's, it's always a joy receiving that from them. Those are special moments of an outwardly expressing strong bond. And that special bond also shows up when they get hurt. Their natural inclination is to run to us, their parents. Sometimes Erica more than me, but uh, that's okay. In general, they cry for and run to us when they get hurt or scared. They're looking for that parental comfort and protection. You see, children want to draw close to their parents. They run to us with open arms, wanting to be held, seeking our affection, and helping them during times of hurt and pain. So with that in mind... I'd like to try and rephrase what I believe Jesus implied in verse 15. 
truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God in a manner of being fully dependent on God and seeking to draw closer to God shall not enter it. So I firmly believe that is how God wants us to approach him, to be completely and utterly reliant on him, seeking after his affection. In other words, to draw close to him daily and to put our full faith and trust in him every day. Okay, so now we have kind of our slightly wider perspective on this text. I'd like to jump into the main uh, text of our uh, message today and picture in your mind with me, if you will, as we set the scene in verse 17, we read that Jesus had just started to depart on his journey to Jerusalem. And the, uh, the word journey being the key word here, that this was not a short distance, but rather a long trip. And just as Jesus started out, the text states, a man ran up. So I imagine this man saw Jesus walking away off in the distance, and he sprinted up to him as if anxious that he might miss out on his opportunity to ask the question. Now, personally, I'm not a runner, and my wife can attest to that. So when I read this man ran up to Jesus, I'm envisioning myself running out of breath, taking multiple breaks, hang on, I'll be right there, you know, kind of the thing. But again, that's, that's me. But anyway, so this man runs up to Jesus, gets in front of him, kneels down, and then asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, let's pause there. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically who this man was, but what does the Bible tell us about him? We know he ran up to Jesus but was he a person who earnestly sought after God like a child to inherit the kingdom, kingdom of God? Let's keep looking. As far as who he was, the heading uh, above this section of the, of our, of the verse that we're reading, at least in my Bible, it, it gives the subtitle uh, that he was a rich young man. So right away, we're getting a little bit of information on who he was. And as seen in verse 22, it confirms he had great possessions. Now, if we read verses 19 through 20, we'll get some more information. It say, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept for my youth. So from there, those two verses, we find out that this man knew and kept the commandments that Jesus listed. Now, while the text doesn't state it specifically, it seems reasonable to conclude that this man was Jewish. He knew and kept the commandments since his youth. It indicates that he was raised and trained in an environment of the Jewish laws and customs. And Jesus further alludes to this when he says to the man in verse 19, you know the commandments. You see, Jesus wasn't asking a question. He already knew everything about this man, and he was simply acknowledging what this man already knew. Now, the great wealth, in conjunction with him not only knowing but also keeping the commandments listed by Jesus, indicates another likelihood, that he would have been an educated Jewish person, probably someone of a high position. And if we cross-reference to other parallel scriptures, we find, for example, in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, that he was also a ruler. So we conclude, can conclude he was a young, rich Jewish ruler who knew and followed, at least to the best of his abilities, the commandments. 
So to recap, we have a Jewish man, young in age, who achieved success in a career as a ruler, achieved success in obtaining great wealth, and is someone who feels they have followed all of the commandments. Therefore, it's plausible to believe this man most likely felt blessed by God and overall probably thought well of himself as being a morally upright and good person. Now, the idea that this rich person may have felt blessed by God isn't baseless either. In fact, we can find in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, God stated he would bless them if they followed and kept all of his commandments. So I'll read a few uh, verses from there. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So there's, there's a saying that if the Bible repeats something more than once, it's probably trying to make a significant point. I would say that's particularly true with these conditional statements that we just read. In fact, in the first six verses, the word blessed or blessing shows up seven times. So with that pattern on, on blessings, I can imagine the people who originally read or heard about this text were like, sweet! You know, but in some Hebrew form of that expression, right? <laughs> Interestingly enough, the text also included a big if-type condition more than once. And that condition was not only stated at the beginning of the text, but also in the middle and at the end. I'll, which I'll follow up with here in verses 13 through 14 at the end here. It says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Okay, let's, let's stop there. It makes you wonder if after hearing these if-type conditions, that the Israelites didn't instantly get selective in their hearing. Yeah, 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 commandments, got them. Now, tell me more about these blessings. So, from reading Deut Deuteronomy, it's feasible to think that the Jewish people who gained great wealth tended to believe that their wealth was directly related to a divine favor from God. This brings me back to the book of Mark uh, and this man's interaction with God. A as, we, as we stated earlier, this, this man who was young in age, claimed to have kept the laws, was in a position of authority, and had great wealth. Therefore, the natural inclination would be to think that this man believed he was in good standing with God. And, and going back to Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 17, we read uh, how he addressed God, calling him good teacher. Seeing how he probably felt morally upright about himself, the thought of calling God or Jesus good teacher didn't seem all that wrong or out of place. So don't, mi don't miss this, though. Notice how Jesus responds to the man's question. Jesus did not answer the question that was asked. Rather, he responds with his own question and statement. One of the many consistencies with Jesus that I, I find in reading the Bible is that he will always go after the heart of people and reveal what's in their heart. So let's pick up in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, on the surface, this may seem like a question and statement from Jesus that we, as readers, might gloss over. Got it. You know, no one's good except God alone. We understand that. However, because Jesus knew this man's heart, the response had a very pinpointed shot at the man's misconception. You are not a good person. Nobody is except God. And Jesus wasn't making an unfounded statement. He was actually referring to another Old Testament scripture, probably one this man should have been aware of, which is located in the book of Psalms. So we'll read from there. In Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, it states, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the words none, all, not even one pretty much encompasses all of us, leaving no one out. And just in case that man overlooked that scripture, there's actually another Old Testament scripture uh, with practically the same text in, in Psalm 53, 1-3. But I'm, I'm going to refrain from reading that because it truly is practically identical to what we just read. So like I stated earlier, the idea that no one is good except God alone gives us insight on this man's heart. He had a distorted view about his own life. Sadly, the man did run to Jesus and rightly called Jesus good but without realizing that he just literally ran up to God in flesh. What's even more sad, as we compare to the earlier text about the children, he didn't run to God out of dependence or seeking his affection. No, as we'll see, it's likely he ran to Jesus in the hopes that Jesus would pat him on the back and say, you're doing a good job, or give a little more effort here, don't do that, or don't do this kind of a response. Let's continue in verses 19 through 20. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Again, based on the man's response, he's probably thinking, I've got this, right? Now notice the nonverbal response from Jesus in the beginning of verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Just like a father looking at their rebellious child, who may or may not be aware of their wrongdoing, is still loved by their father. And because Jesus loved him, he does not hold back the truth. As I stated earlier, one of the consistencies with Jesus is that he will reveal the heart and go after the heart of people. So, this man, unbeknownst to him, is getting ready to be served some jaw-dropping truth. Again in verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Can you imagine the guy's response? It's like, what? Sell everything? How can this be? Aren't my possessions a, a blessing from God? So from an outward appearance, this man looked the part that he had everything together. No problems here, kind of a, kind of a uh, perception there. But that was the problem. His morally good life was only surface deep. And that is why Jesus went for his heart. So what was the true heart issue here for that man? Let's go back to verse 19. 
It states, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You guys are probably familiar with that. That's the, from the Ten Commandments. It's a partial list that God gave Moses for the people of Israel. If we look closely at those reference commandments, they give a common theme. They all deal with human relationships. The man stated that he kept all of those listed commandments that Jesus stated, but what was missing? Again, looking forward in, in verse 21, Jesus stated, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, for us as readers, the text doesn't clearly state what the man was lacking, but it does hint to the heart issue. We read that Jesus asked him to give something up completely, his wealth. And Jesus also states that people with great wealth will have difficulty inheriting eternal life. So we know that. But to, to find out where it states uh, specifically, I'd like to refer to another Old Testament scripture. Uh, and this, this text is actually going to be found in Ezekiel, which was actually written about 550 to 600 years prior to Jesus' birth and this interaction with this man. So listen to how God steadfastly responds to people with this particular type of circumstance. And we're going to read Ezekiel 14, 1 through 8. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. I'm going to skip down to verse 8. And I will set my face against that man, I will make him a sign and a byword. I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am Lord. Now, looking back in the book of Mark, rereading verses 21 through 22, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Again, let's think back to the Ten Commandments. The man says he kept the commandments dealing with human relationships, but he didn't keep the commandments dealing with his relationship with God. The first of the Ten Commandments states, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Interestingly enough, that corresponded directly with the warning that God gave the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28. I'll read that again. If you obey the Lord, uh, the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Do you see the parallels between Mark 10 and Ezekiel 14? In Ezekiel, we had elders of, Israel's, of Israel, rulers or people of authority, coming to consult God. And those elders had idols in their heart. In Mark, we have a rich Jewish ruler approaching Jesus with an idol in his heart, his wealth. That was a key thing this man was lacking. He coveted his worldly treasure so much that he placed it as an idol before God. 
So how did Jesus address the man's idol? He asked the man to give it all up and then to come follow him, to draw close to him, in effect, to seek God's affection and worship him only. But what happened? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He rejected it. The man was unwilling to loosen his grip on his worldly treasure, his great wealth. He was unwilling to let go of his idol. He was unwilling to stop worshiping that idol before God, even if it meant losing out on eternal life. Why? Why would someone intentionally reject eternal life? Let's look back in Ezekiel 14, uh, 4 for an answer on that. In there it says, anyone who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face. Now, that there's, there's a meaning there we need to catch. The man in Mark had an idol in his heart, which created a stumbling block before his face. Now, if you were to take your, your right hand and put it about an inch in front of your face, what would you see? I see my hand. I'm unable to see what is directly behind my hand, right? It, in effect... Your view has been blocked and distorted, and in the perspective of idols in our hearts, we cannot clearly see God either. So our view of God gets distorted by those idols in our hearts. So the man in Mark had a distorted view. He wrongly felt he was on a good track with God on his own merits. But Jesus opened his eyes to a stumbling block by asking him to give up all of his wealth, his idol. Sadly, this man wouldn't let go of his worldly treasure. He clearly could not see the awesome treasure in the context of eternity in heaven because of his covetous heart for the worldly treasure right before him. Wow. How short-sighted we can become in the context of comparing instant gratification or worldly treasures versus eternity with God. I'd like to expand on this a little bit further in comparison to what we read earlier. The man's wealth allowed him to feel secure, comfortable, and self-reliant. Sadly, this fits well with American Christianity today. While we are all striving for financial security and peace of mind, the lesson isn't that we should all give up our wealth. Rather, it's keeping our focus rightly on God. If we keep an open hand like stewards and not grasping onto something with a tight fist under some fictitious perception that it's ours to own, we can keep that right perspective that God is still in control, and that he remains the focus of our hearts. By loosening our grip on the wealth, our dependence can be rightly redirected onto God, which is exactly how Jesus stated we need to approach God, like a child, completely and utterly reliant on him and running to him for our security. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to share as a side note that caught my attention as a point of interest. Back in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 8, it states, And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Let me repeat the key point of interest here. I will make him a sign and a byword. Huh. Another way of saying that is, he will make him an example and a proverbial saying. Really? Isn't that what we have here in Mark chapter 10? Nearly 600 years later, we see an example of a rich young ruler who thought well of himself, but ultimately missed the mark due to the idol that he wouldn't let go. Furthermore, what do we see in verses 23 through 25 in Mark? It states, 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now here it comes. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wait, what? Was that Jesus making a proverbial saying as a sign or an example? You got to love that, right? The parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks volumes to God's steadfastness. So, to summarize on how one inherits eternal life, this text and supporting scripture states that we need to approach God like a child, to let go of our idols so that we can see God clearly and then draw close to him and to be completely and utterly reliant on him, seeking after his affection. Now, no matter how good we might feel about ourselves, we also need to understand that our sinful nature will never bring us close to God by our own merits. Because no man is good, not even one, except for God alone. And the disciples rightly asked in verse 26, then who can be saved? Jesus responded in verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that ability with God was going to be fulfilled at the end of Jesus' journey through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection which he had just started out on at the beginning of our text. So, how can we apply this to our daily lives? Here are some questions for you to consider. Are you approaching God like a child every day? Are you completely and utterly reliant on him and running to him for all of your needs and affection? Or are you striving to be self-reliant and trying to do things your own way? What idols are in your heart that are creating a stumbling block in front of your face and distorting your view of the true God? I ask and pray that we all would let go of our idols and give our whole heart to God. Maybe you're thinking, well, riches aren't a problem for me. But what about other things? If you were to take a personal inventory of your heart right now, what would you find? If you were asked to give something up, it could be anything to let go of it without even knowing what may come afterwards. Could you give it up? Could you release your tight grip on it? If you have a tight grip on something in your life, in effect, you are trying to control the circumstance rather than letting God have control, whether it be wealth and possessions, family, job security, etc. If you're unwilling to give it up, it has become a stumbling block for you. In other words, it has become an idol. Or maybe some sin has so entangled you now that it actually has a grip on you. Fear, anxiety, addictions to lust, pornography, substance abuse, and the list can go on. Whatever it may be, loosen your grip. Give it to God. Repent and follow him. Run to him with open arms. And rather than trying to rely on your own strength, rely on his strength to help you through. Because by ourselves it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right, we're going to pray. Father, thank you for your words of truth today and being a jealous God who wants our full heart's affection. Father, thank you for sending your son into this world and paying the penalty of our sins 
so that we can have that right relationship with you. Father, each and every day, idols are fighting for our affections. So I ask you, Lord, that you would help us in removing any and all idols from our hearts so that we can clearly see you and run to you with full hearts, affection, and dependence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.